This episode of Designed by Architectural Record is sponsored by Vitro Architectural Glass. Solarban R77 Glass by Vitro Architectural Glass reveals new design possibilities with its unique neutral reflective aesthetic. Thanks to its balanced reflective visual quality, Solarban R77 Glass is ideal for realizing facade and curtain wall designs intended to capture the visual character of the sky and ambient environment. Discover the possibilities with Solarban R77 Glass at vitroglazing.com slash SBR77. Again, that's vitroglazing.com forward slash SBR77. And by the ASI Group. The ASI Group is the world's leading manufacturer of commercial toilet partitions, innovative washroom accessories, lockers, and visual display products. With operating units and offices in the United States, Canada, Australia, Belgium, the United Kingdom, the Middle East, Mexico, and China, And with sales in more than 50 countries, the ASI Group has expanded its ability to serve architects, building owners, and contractors all over the world. The ASI Group is known for innovative products, quality, speed to market, and the widest offerings of material products. The ASI Group maintains its flexibility to deliver unique products that suit your needs and a nimble managing philosophy. They have built processes that allow them to ship more products in 48 hours from the time of order than anyone else in the industry. For more information, visit asigroup.us. One more time, that's asigroup.us. Enjoy the show. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Designed, a podcast by Architectural Record. We appreciate you listening, and once finished, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, and leave a comment. If you'd like to learn more about Designed and see all the other great content that Architectural Record has to offer, Please visit architecturalrecord.com for more information. Enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. Hello, all you beautiful people. Welcome back to another episode of Designed by Architectural Record. I am your host, Aaron Prenz. Uh, We are really excited about today's episode. But first, after you listen to this episode, don't forget to claim those CEU credits. And it's so easy. All you have to do is listen to the podcast, uh, and after you're done, go to continuingeducation.bnpmedia.com, take a short quiz, and uh, claim your credits now. Again, that's continuingeducation.bnpmedia.com. And of course, check out architecturalrecord.com and follow the podcast on Instagram at designed.podcast for everything we have coming up, because we're so excited and we just want to share it with you. This week's episode is wonderful. We have Chandra Robinson of Lever Architecture out in Portland, Oregon. If you have, uh, if you're a little bit interested in mass timber, if you want to learn more about it, this is the episode for you. She's absolutely wonderful. So we go into a lot of things, and I don't want to uh, delay it any further. So sit back, relax, enjoy. Here we go with Chandra Robinson. Another Portland State grad on here. Did you go to architecture school there, or was it? Did you? No, I didn't. Yeah, I studied geology at Portland State, actually, and I didn't do architecture undergrad at all. So I went to grad school at the BAC in um, in Boston for architecture school. That's the Boston Architectural College. That's right. Yeah, that's an interesting school. And I don't mean to get off on this whole education thing. Sorry. Yeah, um, but it is, no. they do like you work 40 hours a week and then you go to school until like seven in the morning and then you go to work and then you sleep on the weekends. Yeah. Or how does, how does that all work? I guess. It's, it's pretty tough. Um, <laughs> I think 95% of the people is the statistics. 95% of the people who start that program do not finish the program. They transfer somewhere else where you're just, you're just in school, but 
it's based on an apprenticeship program, an apprenticeship sort of model, right? That's how architects used to be taught is you just go went to work for someone, right? And they taught you what they knew. So the intent is for everyone to work the whole time. But, you know, Boston's a city with a lot of architecture firms. And there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of schools. And so, you know, for myself, I didn't start working until I'd already been there two years. So it just was, you know, I didn't feel like I knew anything when I first started there. So I was like, well, why would someone hire me? I don't know how to do anything. I don't know how to use any programs. This is the first time I'm getting into architecture. So why? Think why would they hire me? That's you're probably on like why there's the five percent that finished it is because you had that knowledge to start with. I feel like most architecture yes. students are like, I know everything there is to know about architecture <laughs> ever. Sorry. Yeah, Side note. Me. But not the me. point <laughs> is you come out with like a fully licensed architect almost, right? More yeah, of a European you mo can. model. Yeah. Yeah, you can be taking your licensure exams. Um, while you're in school, you know, not all of them, because you won't know enough, you know, there's the sort of uh, contract documents, CDs portion, the CA, actually building something, you don't really know anything about that. And all you're doing is reading it from a book. So it doesn't really make sense to take those kind of exams until you're actually start to work. But mo most people start to work um, pretty early in, in their program. And so they actually have a little bit of knowledge there. So it is great because you can go through the program and, and come out and be ready to get licensed. You know, you can't um, actually get licensed until you're done with school, but you can be taking the exams. So it does help people, but it is a long program as well. And so, you know, it's, it's either or. It's you spend a little more time in school, but you're able to take exams because you're working or you go through a program that's really quick, a master's program that's two years, maybe three years, uh, but you come out and then you can start taking your exams. And so either way, I mean, architecture takes a long time to get into with all of the exams they make you take. Well, I'm just, I just had to ask, and I don't mean to get off on a whole education thing. Oh, yeah. It's like, I, I talked to so many GSD grads and there's like only, you know, so much you can take. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited yeah. to hear someone, especially yes. Boston Architectural College. Is such a, or, anyway. When I was there, it was center. And oh, okay. then like it's, they switched to college and I was like, oh, I kind of like center. I don't yeah. know why, but it just sounds better to me. <laughs> it's a unique program. So I think it, it's worth it highlighting is. if we can. I do want to pivot to Lever and the work that you all have done because the breadth of the work, it's it's pretty amazing. I think, you know, you have everything from NBC Universal to Adidas to yes. the first Mass Timber high rise, which is kind of where I want to start because Mass Timber, okay. I feel like I've talked to whether it's Biarca or the people starting Juno, like Mass Timber is uh, a way to put it very in fashion right now. But I yes. think you guys, not to be like Portland hipsters, but we're doing Mass Timber before it was cool, right? And it's so it's totally true. Yep. Yeah. It's speaking like staying on trend with Portland, Oregon. So <laughs> if you can, can you kind of take us through where this whole concept for, for Lever started with Mass Timber? And we can just kind of roll through. Compared to traditional construction, how does it vary? What do people, what are some common misconceptions? How did you get to where you are now? Well, you know, it's interesting because framework was, you know, a model. It was permitted for, you know, tall timber. And uh, that was an affordable housing project. It didn't get built, but what it was, was there was a competition there. Uh, lots of people were looking into mass timber. And this was a grant that we got from the USDA in order to do a bunch of testing on timber structures so that we could start building uh, taller buildings with it, right? So Lever and Shop both got these grants from the USDA 
and put it all into this research. And so in designing framework, we used about a million dollars testing all these kinds of systems, right? So we were testing different details. Um, we were doing fire testing, we were doing structural testing and really coming up with these systems and these details of how everything goes together. And because it's USDA, it's actually open source, right? So all of these details and all this research that went into this project is open to everyone in the country to kind of use from use that and, and learn and be able to apply it on other buildings. So even the framework didn't actually get built, it actually helped push the field forward and push mass timber forward because suddenly there were all these details that people could use um, and kind of look at how something could get put together. So at the same time that we were doing that, we were also building our own building. You know, we're, we're here in Albina Yard in Portland and we were building our own building. We don't own it but we, we have like three of the four floors that are in here. And this is the first building that's made with domestically produced CLT. So the first building in the whole country where we actually used materials that were close by here in Oregon in our forest to create these cross laminated panels and build a building with them. And so that was really exciting because really what we like to do is be able to work with manufacturers and consultants and figure out what it is that they do and how they do it. If there's any way that we can leverage that expertise that they have into pushing forward building technologies. Really, we got started in thinking about, yes, we're, you know, where are we? We're in timber country. You know, Oregon has always been timber country. It starts for us with thinking about what are the things that we do really well here and what do we want to use in, in buildings? And so, you know, very early on, it was working with you know, one of the manufacturers here who are, who've now grown a lot, but they were really small when we were working with them in designing up on a yard. And, you know, they didn't necessarily have the capacity to, to make enough CLT panels for a building, but in working with them and understanding how they work and developing details alongside them, we were able to sort of simplify things enough so that they actually could produce enough uh, panels for this building, which is a, you know, it's a small building that sort of helped get everything going because it was like, okay, now there's a manufacturer here who has the capacity to do this. And so there's going to be a lot more product coming out that people can use in buildings. And so it's really exciting to actually still be in this building and see old details, those original details of how the beams and columns are coming together and thinking, well, you know, we wouldn't do this again, right? These details have evolved so much since this building was complete, which was 2016. And so every time we're doing mass timber now, you know, things are always a hybrid. So it's about, you know, steel and wood coming together or concrete and wood coming together and everything's sort of an iteration. It's a, it's an evolution of those details and how we put things together. And that evolution is really to make things simpler, easier to construct, faster, more beautiful. So we really do that on every project. So imagining sort of the details we have here in Albina Yard. And then you jump forward to Adidas and how, how that detail has evolved so that it's, you know, it's using a, a concrete corbelled beam where the CLT uh, double T's just kind of sit in with a gravity connection and sit in these notches, you know, going from that, from these posts that are buried inside and connected to like four different things, you know, we're really making it more simple. Now you're just setting these things down and that's it. it. They're connected. Um, so I think that's what's really exciting about about being in the mass timber space is that there's always something else to move forward. And, and so, yes, thinking about how Portland is ahead lots of times and things, and, and we're always really excited about that. 
for us, it's more about, okay, yes, we've done that, but like, what is, what is the next thing that we can do to make this a better product, better system, um, and really push it out there farther. And, you know, part of that's really making sure that we have this, there's this connection between the urban economies and the rural economies and kind of making those more connected so that we know the work we're doing isn't just about making this building, right? It's about actually connecting with all the folks out there who are in the timber industry and sort of making more opportunities for us to grow. So sort of helping grow those rural economies in what ways we can. That's what's been really exciting. And that's kind of how we got into it, really, was trying to make that connection. What were some of the, I think, you know, as like a sort of research and development is kind of how it sounds like it started. What were some of the, maybe the original assumptions of what was possible and the early successes and then the things that maybe didn't go as well as planned? I think that um, early on, it was really thinking about how can we make these systems and show this research so that people understand that this isn't a timber building of, you know, 100 years ago. This is, these are different systems. Uh, I think that people still had a fear of, you know, oh, it's wood, isn't it going to burn down, right? And so making making really clear, here's all of the work that we've been doing and no, these are very resilient and there's a layer of char and, you know, these are two-hour buildings just like a steel or concrete building would be. Um, I think those were some of the original thoughts when we were kind of pulling it all together was um, that's going to be important for us to be able to show people. I think what was most exciting, honestly, was putting together those tests, right? Uh, Saying that this is performance-based design instead of just doing, you know, looking at what you're supposed to do and, and matching all the sizes there instead saying, okay, let's look at this piece of wood. Let's see how it performs in, you know, a seismic event when you're putting it on the table or when you're crushing it. Let's see how it performs with fire. And so I think that it was really like, what's going to happen? You know, we're watching this thing happen in, you know, in the lab and thinking like, oh, I hope it goes well. I hope it goes well. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) there was like a level of excitement, you know, um, when the team was out there watching these tests happen because the assumption was, yeah, of course, the math works. It's, It's going to be great. But then the reality of, you know, setting this thing on fire in this, you know, metal box with a little window and burning it for two hours was, you know, a little bit stressful and thinking, okay, well, this really has to work. Otherwise we have to, you know, redo a lot of, a lot of details. So I think that was really interesting because we did have assumptions that it was all going to work. It did actually all work, but there was still this element of like, what if it doesn't, but that makes things exciting, right? Like you're always trying to do something new and you're not sure about it. I mean, that's, that's a great place to be. I think. I want to, I want to, touch on open source but before we get there mm-hmm. i think you know when you do something that is kind of groundbreaking and that gets a lot of attention it is easy for example like the dust guys i don't know if you know dust um mm-hmm. yeah. dust out in new mexico but yeah. they had a lot of success with their first like kind of a rammed earth house and now they just get calls to do like another version of that all yes. the time so yes. you you all are kind of you know the leaders in mass timber are how do you not fall into this trope of we're just a mass timber firm and everyone just wants some sort of mass timber or do you yeah. care or you're like we'll embrace it we'll love it we'll do all the timber we want uh just how does that all work in terms of running your practice and the projects that you take yeah that's interesting because we do get a lot of calls for mass timber buildings right um a lot of developers want to be out there want to create something that people are really excited to move into 
But for us, what's more important is that if we're going to do a mass timber building, there's um, some level of innovation that's going to happen, that the client is excited about design and not just mass timber, and that we have the opportunity to push something forward. So we're not just going to build another Albina yard. We're not just going to build another Adidas, right? We're going to be moving forward. And so if the client isn't interested in that, then we are probably, it's probably something we're going to pass on because we do have other opportunities where we can push building technologies forward and, and try new things. And that's what, you know, we're a fairly young firm. And I think that's what keeps us all excited working here is that every time we engage in a new project, we know that it's going to be different from the things that we've done before, however that is, right? Yes, we do get calls, you know, folks want mass timber and and they do call us because a lot of firms now have, have done one mass timber building and, you know, we've done like 14. So it feels like, yes, that's what, that's why it's important for us to keep being able to evolve because we've done a whole bunch of them and they're all really great and they were great to work on, but we want to be sure that we're moving forward. We're learning new things and we're able to contribute to, to the industry really by doing new things all the time. So. It is hard sometimes to be like, oh, yeah, that sounds like it would be a fun project, but there isn't going to be anything to, like we would end up using the same details because the client doesn't have um, doesn't have capacity for a sort of a longer design process or is not interested in any innovation. And that's kind of boring. So we want to we want to be excited about our work. The amateur allergies. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> no, I do. Uh, I thought that I was surprised to hear the open source comment early on mm -hmm. and just because i feel like architects for whatever reason really hold things like yeah. close to the best i don't know if it's a liability thing or what yeah. what why it is or they're scared someone else is going to get it and i've we've been talking yeah. about this a lot on the podcast about that we should be looking more of like if we win the industry wins and that yes. if you're comfortable with yourself and the work you're doing it doesn't matter yeah. if XYZ firm has something similar that you've done because you're confident that clients are coming to you for you. So I'm just right. curious how this open source plays into the business model at Lever. Well, you know, here's another example because it's not it's not the only open source thing that we've done because we so we did actually receive another USDA grant and that was to create a web-based tool for designers to be able to research sustainable wood products for procurement. We went through this process on one of our projects, Meyer Memorial Trust, that was finished in uh, 2020. So that's over on Vancouver in Albina. In that project, we had a really robust sustainable wood procurement process that we developed along with um, Sustainable Northwest, so their nonprofit. It was based in sustainability and in equity, right? So thinking about what are all the opportunities, who are all the manufacturers that are close by us? And how do products stack up? So what is the price premium on an FSC certified, you know, linear wood ceiling product compared to not? And where does it come from? So there were, you know, and I could talk about that for hours because there were so many sort of elements that, that we looked at to create something where we could say to the client, hey, here's the difference in cost to get this um, sustainable product or not, uh, or maybe less sustainable. And it's really depending on the on the client's values. And that client really valued equity and sustainability. And so that's kind of how we, we put it together. We did so much work. It was really, really successful. And we have been using it as a model on other projects to say, okay, let's make some good choices here that we bring to the client. 
And, and so now having gone again to Timber Innovation Grant Program, we got another grant in order to take all this information that we, that we gathered on Meyer Memorial Trust and put it into a web tool that other designers can use, right? So we don't want to say, hey, this is a, a source of timber that's managed by a tribal enterprise and we want to be the only ones who know about it and are getting it, right? We, we really do believe in equity and we want to sort of push all those ideas out. So this, again, will be open source for designers to just use. And I think that, you know, having an aspect of, of that, of something where we're really intentionally working to advance the industry, it means that we're giving other folks knowledge, other design teams knowledge, so that they can also advance the industry. And then we can use that information that they're pushing out, right? So I think it's it's kind of about, you know, being mutually helpful and knowing that we're we're all in this space and there are all things that we're doing really well. There are plenty of other things like for all of our projects, like the Adidas project. I mean, that's not open source. We're not sharing all the details of that and these systems that were developed specifically for that building. Um, Wait, you're saying Adidas doesn't want all their stuff just out there? Is that what it is? <laughs> I mean, no, you can't, you can't build someone the same building as, you know, as, as someone else's, right? It's, yeah, yeah. it's theirs. It's for Adidas. It's, that's what we did. Right. So I, there's definitely a balance and we're, we're really intentional about the ones that are open source. So, I, so everything else isn't, but we're really intentional about the things that have big impacts on the industry and, you know, and just decide sort of as a firm that that's a value that we want to sort of move things along, push things forward. I do want to pivot to one project that's gotten a lot of publicity lately, if we can. And that's yeah. just to make it more confusing, the, the Portland Museum of Art in Portland, Maine. Yes. Uh, so it was a competition. A number of firms, like hundreds of firms, had entered this competition. And you got whittled down yeah. to the final four. And I'm not yes. going to name names, but they are very notable yeah. firms from across the world that have been active for a number of years. Can you take us through, because this is the second time competition has come up, just in general, can you take us through the competition process and what that means for Lever? Oh, yeah. The process was really interesting. And yes, so there were, I think, 104 firms who submitted. It was an open competition and from all over the world. So it was, you know, there's a there's a board, uh, there's a jury at the Portland Museum of Art, and they whittled it down to four teams. So what we did was, you know, the first time we met with them was to go out and do a site visit. The next time we met with them was to do sort of an interim review. Uh, And then we came back and did a public presentation of the work and then came back and did a jury presentation. And so we went out four times specifically for all of those things. The, The process was really great, though, because, you know, in the public presentation, we all presented together in the same room. That's pretty atypical. Usually you don't get to cross paths at all with any of the other teams. You definitely don't get to see their boards. You don't get to hear them speak about their project, right? And what was so great about this process that that Dovetail Design Strategist put together was that there was this public presentation. We all were in the same room. We presented one after the other. And so we had already seen each other's designs and sort of the run-throughs. You know, what's what's so special about that is hearing design teams talk about their work. It just gives you so much more understanding than you have by looking at their boards or looking at their model. 
And, and so for me, that was really exciting was to sit in that room with all those, um, those incredible design teams and be able to hear them talk about their work. So for me, it was way more fun than another type of competition where you're, you're really siloed, you know, there's a, a door in and a door out. And when you come in to present, you know, the other team leaves, and you never get to see one another and you're not allowed to go into the exhibit hall or anything like that. So I think there was just a little bit more connection. And even though it was a competition, it was really great to see um, women and people of color really well represented in this competition. And so that really excited me as well, that it wasn't all uh, white men who were presenting for their teams that were the head of their firms, but you know, it, it was great. So for me, it was especially exciting and, and a really interesting process compared to other competitions. But you know, the office was so excited about it. Everyone worked so hard on the competition, late nights, you know, building these incredibly beautiful models, the renderings, really just talking about the narrative and bringing things together, that everyone was so excited to be part of the competition. And, and it's really so rewarding when you, when you win and you know how much work everyone has put into it, right? And that it really feels good. And then I think the other part of that was, you know, the PMA, they, they set it up so that, you know, we were really following their lead, you know, they wanted, they have sort of these uh, mission and vision and these, um, these sort of goals about art for all and art is the heart. They really want people to not only, not to sort of be welcomed by them into this art space, but to see the building and know that they're already welcome so that people come in with a sense of ownership. And so that was a really good opportunity for us to just think about things differently, think about museums differently. And, you know, we really started with working with our um, consultant, our indigenous um, culture consultant, Chris Newell. You know, he really taught us about the, the Wabanaki worldview. And so we really used those ideas that he brought to us to create this building, this design. And I think that's what really resonated with people, that it was very much tied to this exact place in the world. It wasn't just, it could be anywhere in Portland, or it just needed to be on a hill somewhere. You know, there's a lot of things that that people say in architecture that are like, oh, this is very site-specific. This could only be right here. But you look at it, and it's kind of like, oh, I think I've seen that before, you know? But no, this I, was very... No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've sat through seven years of architecture school. The crap I've heard come out of people's mouths. I'm like, yes. tone it down, Aaron. Tone it down. Getting a little excited. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of things that people say that you're like, mm, that's that's going too far. It means nothing. It means nothing. And it's so it's so frustrating to hear that. And I and I don't want architecture students to learn that kind of language specifically because it just makes you say things that mean nothing. And um and it's really important for us for our work to to mean something and to be genuine, to be authentic and to be really beautiful, you know, design. But design isn't just, you know, a form and something that looks nice. It's it's about how it works for people, because if we're building for people, every building is for people. And just to take everyone through, because, you know, can you take us through the design process? You've talked a lot about the narrative itself. Can you yeah. take us through that narrative and Walk us through the building and let us know, yeah. you know, what you came up with. So, you know, the the brief talked about the history of all of these buildings at the PMA. Which is a very old really, building, right? 140, yes. 140 years. It's 
Yeah, there's a series of, of buildings on there, you know, small houses that were turned into museum spaces all on this sort of, you know, really big block. So there's a lot of different styles. They're all individual buildings. And, you know, what they wanted was to bring it together and make it really feel like a campus and make circulation feel um, a little bit more intuitive on the interior and create all of this new space for the collections they have for more art and for more community spaces so that they can run the programs because they really are, they have these programs, but the spaces that they have in on the campus really just don't work for the kind of programs that they want to run. So I feel like programmatically, they've already created a new kind of museum that welcomes people in and has a lot of great, uh, you know, art classes, a lot of programs for kids. And they do this thing at the PMA that was that was really important to us. It's And they call it multi-vocal. And what that means is that there might be descriptions of art that are described by different people of different cultures, right? So it's not just an art expert is telling you what this art means and what it's about, right? But it's someone else maybe from the community, someone who has a different perspective on that art or the topic describes to you what this art is. So they're already bringing in all of these different voices. And so that's really what we kind of latched onto in thinking about how to create this new space. How do you bring all of those voices in? How do you interpret and represent different cultures that are going to be in the space? And so thinking about the design, it was really about creating something that can, could connect all of these buildings on the campus. But it was also something that, you know, it was very intentionally, what kind of spaces can we make that people don't feel overwhelmed or feel unwelcomed when they come into because a lot of times you come into a museum one of the first things you see is a security guard and then you see a ticket desk and you know you have to immediately go to the ticket desk right you shouldn't you have to go there you need a ticket to be in this space so really the design process was thinking about how do we how do we combat that how do we sort of bring to light the ways in which museums have caused inequities before and and turn those around so you know you come into a space and Maybe you haven't visited museums a lot uh, because you didn't think it was a space for you. And then the first thing that happens when you come in is there's a security guard, right? And the second thing is now you must pay to get in here. So that idea was to say, let's make this ground floor really open and put all the community programming right at the front. So when you approach the building, you see a maker space, you see people making art, making crafts and doing things that you're like, oh, okay, well, they're in process. Those are people from my community who are working in here. And coming in farther to the building, you see a community gallery. So you see work that people have put up. Maybe they've created in the museum. Maybe they've created it somewhere else and it's being displayed. You see the classrooms where kids are doing their programs, uh, school kids. You see a coffee bar. You know, one side's a coffee bar, one side's the sort of ticket booth, but this whole ground floor leading all the way back to a theater and to the exterior sculpture court, all of that is free. And really, you're just looking up into the other levels of the space. Um, so there's a big opening in the center and you can see art on the walls. You can't see everything, but you can see the exhibits. And so in doing that, it was really to say, hey, this whole floor, you don't have to pay to be here. You can just come and look around, you can get a coffee, you can sit down, you can go into the theater. So many things to do that make people feel like, oh, this is a place for me. I'm, I'm perfectly fine being here. And if I want to see those exhibits, I get a ticket here and I go upstairs. And then really thinking that was sort of the first thing was how do we make this area super welcoming? The next thing was, you know, how does it really fit on the site? So that 
on the ground floor, there's sort of this long axis that connects these two streets. Free Street is on the high side and Spring Street is on the low side. There's a big grade change. And you know what we did was kind of create this view straight out so that there's a connection now between those streets instead of having to go out of the building and around and then come back up into some of the, the older houses that are museum space. So creating a visual connection between those two streets, kind of framing a big tree that's in a courtyard out there and making it feel like, oh, here's a, here's a path of travel and I can go all the way through this space and none of this is ticketed space. So there was that connection. And then there was um, the idea that we got from our consultant, Chris Newell, about the Wabanaki worldview. So the Wabanaki are many different indigenous nations in sort of the main Northeast area. Specifically, the Wabanaki people are called the people of the Dawnland, and it's their their responsibility and their privilege to welcome the sun as it first hits the continent, you know, because Maine sort of sticks way out into the ocean, right? That's a lot of pressure. so beautiful. So beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It is a lot of pressure. (laughs) But that idea was so beautiful that, you know, they're the people of the Dawnland, so what does it mean to be on this exact spot, you know, and, and the, the site is sort of on a hill, overlooks Portland and Casco Bay, all these beautiful views. And so we really thought about that and said, okay, well, you know, we're thinking about these celestial connections. It's, it's pretty, you know, it's a very big idea. So how can we take this, um, you know, this connection between these two streets and, and make it more powerful. So it was about sort of shifting it a little bit so that it aligned with the, the winter solstice at that level so that you actually get that low winter sun in, you know, in that path that I was talking about that goes between the new streets and you see the tree, you get that low winter sun coming in if you can adjust the angle of where it is, right? Where's the sun going to come up in winter? You know, the, the roof form is this, you know, really swooping, curvy roof form. And thinking about what that does on the skyline and what that looks like, um, there was a way to, you know, not align with the sun, but have the building sort of cradle where the sun is at the summer solstice, right? So winter, the sun is very low. Summer, the sun is much higher. So now, you know, the, the, the curve of the roof is really just making this sort of gesture that it looks like it's cradling it. And that These was are very exciting. Very complicated ideas. I mean, there's the yeah. was it the World Trade Center submission where it was like the sun's gonna hit the site at the time that the second plane hit the tower or something. Right. And it was like, is that possible? Like, I don't I, know. Yeah. Like what yeah. very complicated ideas. How yes. are you putting these into reality? I guess is is a way of well, you know, so, so just from far, the computer, like you can you know what I mean? But so you know, the competition is all about these ideas. But we haven't actually uh, been able to connect with community yet. And so that's what we're starting as the first part of the project, right, is, you know, confirming the program is what it needs to be and talking to people in the community throughout Portland and Maine, talking to folks in different communities, different cultures about what it is that they need in a space, what would make them feel welcome in a space, what would make them come back, you know, what are things that are missing or, you know, you know, space Space is not neutral. Everyone doesn't react to space in the same way. It feels different depending on your perspective and your life experience. And so we really want to make sure that those things work, right? So we, these are the big ideas in the design that we want to keep, but we know that there's going to be changes that happen, right, to the, to the design. 
my answer is really just that that's where we are right now. These big ideas really connect us back to the indigenous people, but we won't need to test it out until we've done some more, some more work with community members and with the museum and make sure that that's, you know, that's where we're going. That feels right because it's such a beautiful idea. And, you know, honestly, the, the roof form is really about, about cradling the sun, right? So now it's not a very specific alignment that's like, if it's not exactly this tall and exactly this wide, it's not going to align, right? It's really that axis through the building. That's the one that we would need to dial in and make sure it's actually on the right, um, at the right angle, exactly. For that to, for us to have that beautiful low winter sun, you know, coming in and, and really filling that space with light when it's really dark all the time in the winter and you have very, a short opportunity to get that sun, just like here in Portland, where in the winter it's, you know, starts getting dark at four and four 30. It's really dark. Uh, same thing happens in, in Portland, Maine. And uh, so, you know, yeah, more work needs to be done. This is a, this is a concept. It's, it's very aspirational and we are going to give that to the museum. They will have something really incredible and the details have to be worked out. Right. But but having having you know this idea that's really connecting all of these people and spaces together, I think is is really cool for a museum to be able to do. And I think in terms of narrative, crushed it. Nice job. <laughs> but I'm so I, have, glad. <laughs> I have two uh, two follow up. I know, really, just seeking approval is what this whole podcast is. About. No, uh, I I have uh, a couple follow up questions. One is I think it's always interesting with competitions and to hear that you did get to hear the other the other presentations. I have flashbacks to to Todd and Billy talking about the Obama library mm -hmm. and similar situation. I don't think they saw people present, but when they walked into the hall, they saw the other boards and they were like, oh, no. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then like Obama came down from the ceiling on wires and was like, you won or whatever it was. I don't know. Something right. like that, but they were like, they got this <laughs> intense and dramatic. So yeah. How, uh, what do you think it was about your submission that really won, won the competition? Well, so there were kind of two sides about it. The, um, there were all the things that the PMA wanted, you know, in this building, what they wanted to represent, what they wanted to support in terms of programming, where they wanted to be in the future. And then there was also another side that was sort of, the public and really about the place we were in. And so, you know, the, the presentation that we gave, it was very personal. I gave that presentation for the design team. You know, architecture is a, is a collaboration. So there's a lot of people here at Lever that worked on it, right? It's not just me. I'm just, I just get the privilege of talking about it, which is, is so fun because it's an awesome project. But so part of it was, you know, thinking about, you know, what do we know about Maine? How are we connecting to it? And, you know, Michael Faulkner, he's a senior associate here. He actually grew up in Maine. His parents were in the audience when we did this presentation. And then, you know, I, before he's, I was an architect, I was a sea leave. kayaking guide. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, you were, you were yes. a kayak guide. I was a double-decker yes. bus tour guide. So I feel Oh like, my gosh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, before I went to architecture school, I was doing a lot of sea kayaking and I was guiding and I was going to different places and, and doing that, like Alaska and, and Baja and Maine, because it's so beautiful. So many islands, Penobscot Bay and Casco Bay. So I already had this connection that, you know, it's not that I forgot about it, but it was when we um, when we landed in Portland and then, you know, Thomas and I, Thomas is the Thomas Robinson is the founder of Lever. 
And uh, when he and I were in a, in a taxi going into the city, I just started remembering all these things about my time there. Like, oh my gosh, the islands and like these views are so beautiful. And I just started getting so excited about just being back in Portland. And I started remembering all these things um, from the sea kayaking trips. You know, this idea of, you know, taking people out to these places that they've never been before. And there is this very specific story that I shared. I have a lot of stories. I'm just that person who has a lot of stories. Love but yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the story I shared was really about taking people out to these specific islands in Casco Bay, right? Uh, so there's a couple of little islands. It's a nature preserve. They're called the Goslings. And they're near some other larger islands that are like Upper Goose and Lower Goose. But these are the little islands. So I would take folks out there and there were two islands and we would kind of split the group between the two islands. And that was unusual because we usually all camped together, right? So it's a sea kayaking when you're out there for a week and you've packed all your stuff with you. So people would set up and then, you know, as the, as the day went on, they would start to realize that as the tide went out, there was a sandbar between those islands that connected them. So after a certain amount of time, they were able to go back and forth, visit each other's islands, explore a little bit. And and that's really how people were connecting by having this shared experience of being somewhere and seeing something happen, right? Seeing something unexpected happen. It's a really magical place being out there in Casco Bay. It's so beautiful. So thinking about that sort of connection and how people are connected was how we started thinking about the campus. And thinking about, okay, here's all these sort of separate places. How are you connecting them? How are you creating some experience for people that also makes people feel connected to the place and to one another, even if they're all strangers, as they were on these kayaking trips, right? So I think having this um, understanding of the place and the light in the summer and these connections and how, uh, how special these islands are to all the folks who live there. I think that part of that, our personal connections to Maine and our putting Wabanaki worldview in front of everyone, it's not like we designed something and then we consulted with um, Indigenous communities about what should be in there. We we first consulted and took those ideas and, and wove them into the design. And then we just have this, you know, personal passion and love for this place that we really wanted to elevate and talk about the light and talk about this specific place in the world. And I think that added to the really beautiful, graceful design, the natural materials that we're really talking about, you know, just like we do here in Oregon, where we're finding our materials from close by and leveraging what people already do well here, talking about that same way of working in Maine and getting wood from Maine and getting granite and sort of bringing all these things together to create a building that was made from the materials there that celebrates the light that's there in that specific place and sort of has this um, love for the natural world and for people. That's that's why we won, because it was really personal and we all loved it and worked super hard on it. So that's why we won. It's not because other projects were not beautiful. They were, but ours truly was about people first about connecting with Indigenous cultures and communities who would be in the space. And uh, just by, you know, having a an understanding of Maine and a love for Maine and a willingness to learn more and incorporate more. One one broader kind of topic that I feel like is, is a main driver behind this design is the inclusivity of the bottom floor and making sure everyone feels welcome. And it's a place yes. not just 
if you're buying a ticket, you can go get a coffee or whatever it may be. It's a, it's kind of the, the, the community's living room, if you will, to use like the, yes. kind of the library speak with it. But Portland, Oregon is probably one of the most inclusive places that you could have in terms of people, you know, looking out for one another and each other's well-being and everything. Yeah. So are there examples of past projects that you've done where you've implemented this idea and successful is it and what does it do for the overall community? So we've been doing a lot of projects that are really focused on the Black community. We have a lot of work here in Albina and it's our neighborhood. We care a lot about it. You know, I grew up here in Portland. Uh, so the projects that we're working on, you know, Albina Vision Trust, the Albina One is the name of the first project that they're doing in that community investment plan, right? So at the Rose Quarter area on the west side of I-5, um, their plan is to sort of redevelop all of this space into places that are, you know, educational hubs, residential, that there's uh, industry and places to work and there's parks and there's arts. And so we're working on a building that's, you know, the very first building in that in that investment plan. And what we're thinking about there is, hey, here are here are people who are going to live in this affordable building. And then we also created this really large park next to it in anticipation of the community that's going to grow around it over the next, you know, however many years, right? So I think what we're doing now is is forward thinking about what this space is going to do for how the building grows or how the community grows up around that building. Thinking about Meyer, you know, they wanted to be in Albina because they provide, you know, Meyer Memorial Trust, really big foundation. They provide grants just in Oregon in order to, you know, make our communities flourish. So they provide grants for lots of different things, equity, sustainability, education, innovation. And so in designing Meyer, building Meyer, and building all of these systems about sustainable um, wood procurement is also very much about equity. So it was very much top-down equity because Meyer was really invested and wanted to make sure that this project was as diverse as possible. So, you know, Michelle DePass is the CEO, a Black woman. Anyale Haliba, who was the development um, partner from Project PDX, who has now opened her own shop, Audre, and then myself as the PM. Um, so it was really staffed from the beginning to make sure there were uh, lots of women and people of color and not just, you know, there's a whole thing in Oregon about COVID and having your company certified if you are a minority or women-owned or disadvantaged business and you know, there's a number and and everyone wants to have a certain percentage of COVID partners. But it was not just about that, but it was getting actual people, whether they own the company or not, to make sure that we had a really diverse team who was actually building the building. So a lot of women hours, apprenticeship hours, um, all of that was really important. And we were really thinking about, you know, here's the building. We've pushed it back on the site to create kind of a big porch. So again, an idea about what that building or that site can do for the community that's either there or that's coming, right? Because Albina is growing up. There's a lot of things happening. Thinking about Jefferson High School, because we're on the uh, modernization um, team for Jefferson High School. So thinking about, and that's traditionally, you know, for folks who don't know Portland, that has traditionally been thought of as the Black high school because it was in the middle of the Black community before it was very gentrified. People were pushed out and now, you know, it's more diverse, but it used to be um, predominantly Black. So working on that project, we're very much thinking about, you know, what are the Latinx kids doing? What do they need? How do they feel in the space now? What are they going to need going forward? 
and uh, kids who are from indigenous communities, um, really thinking about all the populations that are in the school now and who's gonna be coming to the school, doing this community engagement with them is really important because we're not experts in other people's experience. We're not experts in what people need, right? So in order to have that information, you have to ask them. The libraries, Multnomah County libraries, we're doing both the Albina Library and the North Cortland Library. Again, these are all in the same neighborhood, right? All in Albina and we're on Albina. So we're, we're really close by. So again, we did, you know, I'd say three or four months straight of just community engagement, just doing affinity groups, having big public meetings, pushing information out, asking for information before we went into the sort of programming and design phase, right? So every project that we're doing around here is really focused on the community and on reaching out before we do the design. And that's really important. So that's something that we're able to bring in to other projects, right? So because we have this, this history and this experience of doing community engagement and folding in the information that we've gotten from them, that's why we're able to do this at, at uh, the Portland Museum of Art, right? We have the background, but, you know, I think the other thing about us is that we know that we don't know everything. And so we have consultants with us who do this work as well, because I want to learn from them. You know, I know how to do, do it the way I do, and I change it when it needs to change. But, you know, we're working with Openbox, and they're sort of a community research and design studio, and so they're going to lead the community engagement for the PMA, and I'm going to get to learn from them how they do that work and participate with them. And so I'm really excited about it. So honestly, you know, these things that we're thinking about for the PMA are things that we've been building on over the years. And we've been um, not testing, but we've been implementing them here in our own community. So it's very easy to see. It's not like we're, you know, doing something that's in Washington, D.C., and we you know, aren't there every day to know how it works. But instead, you know, we have like these five different buildings that we've been working on where we've been using this kind of, um, you know, engagement first process. So we know that it will work and we know how much value it adds to, to the project. And that's what we're bringing to the PMA. So it's exciting to, you know, just like with timber innovation, it's like, this is, you know, engagement innovation. And we just keep moving forward and changing things as we go, as they need to be changed learning things from other people and and pushing that information out into the industry because I'm happy to tell anyone how I do engagement. I want them to do it. You know, I'm not going to do it for you. You have to do it, but I want to share that information with people. And so it's really exciting to get to bring that across the country and start doing that work there in the other in the other Portland. We're the other Portland. They're the first Portland. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so interesting because I feel like there is this big shift in, you know, architecture. If you look in like the movies or like the the black turtleneck round spectacles where this, yeah. one, this one dude knew everything that the community needed. And I feel like right. there's a big shift in like just the approach to the industry. So I'm yeah. for it. What's your proudest moment in architecture? Ooh, I think my proudest moment was... Um actually at the groundbreaking for the Meyer Memorial Trust. As an, as an architect, I am not often sort of giving any kind of speeches or anything at groundbreakings. Like I don't get to hold the golden shovel, right? It's the, it's the developer, it's the client, you know, this is the, this is their moment to be like, yes, our project is going forward. My money um, did this. Yes. That's right. <laughs> but for Meyer, you know, we had this groundbreaking ceremony and it was 
all of these black women up on the stage talking about this project that we were making together, right? You know, the the whole PM team was women and that I was, I felt so proud that this was a project happening in Portland. You know, I grew up in Portland and knowing how few women of color are architects, you know, I'll tell you something crazy here in Oregon, there are four people who are part of the AIA who identify as black, uh, four architects, right? And I'm one of those four. So there's three other in the whole state. So being able to be up there at that groundbreaking ceremony with all of these black women involved in the project, I was really proud about that. I, I felt like, hey, this is different. This is something that would not have happened even 10 years ago. And uh, that was a really good feeling. What's the biggest setback you've had in your career and how have you used it to kind of get to where you are now? So I was at a firm a while ago, you know, I've been here at Lever four and a half years or something and a few firms ago, not, you know, not the last firm or the firm before that, but, you know, every year when I would have a review, I would talk about, you know, the things that I hadn't been able to do right here. I haven't gotten a chance to do exterior details, these things that I had done in firms before, and I felt like I was losing some skills. So every year I'd be like, is there going to be an opportunity for me this year to do this kind of work? And every year they would say, yes, yes, we have, we're, you know, there's going to be great projects coming up. You know, we really want this for you. Like we're totally behind you. And years went by at the fourth year when we had the same conversation, I was like, oh, it's never going to happen. I don't know why it took me so long to realize it's never going to happen. And I moved on immediately. I said, oh, that's it. Okay, I'm going to look for another job. I'm going to find a place that's free where I can actually advance and have some opportunities and do some cool stuff. And so that was a setback for four years. And then I bounced right back out and said, okay, I know not to stay too long at a place if I'm not getting to learn what I think I need to learn. And that pushed me forward really quickly. So yeah, you know, bad things happen that really turn out very well. Knowing what you know now, you've had this wonderful career. Obviously, you're leading the industry in a lot of ways. What would you tell yourself sitting back at, you know, Boston Architectural College, working mm-hmm. during the day, studying at night? Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for your younger self? Wow. I mean, I think that I always just expected that I would get somewhere I wanted to be. I think, I guess what I would tell myself is it's really in relation to that, you know, that time period I spent a little too long at a place. I would tell myself, you know, keep hopping around, find something that works for you, test out different sizes of firms and, you know, typologies of work that people do, different, you know, management structures and just, um, you know, see what's out there and see what fits with you instead of staying so long at one place, right? And and that's kind of what people do in architecture, but it also it's also really hard to leave a place. So that's part of it is saying like, yes, it's hard, but it's not like you are abandoning your mother. You know, this is work. This is a career. This is professional. It's okay to move on. Wait, architecture is a job. I thought you do it for the passion of the building. Is it not <laughs> what you're doing? <laughs> I say that yeah, ironically I mean, because that's like, of course. I love to hear someone actually be like, this is your job. This is a career. And it's yes. like, it's very refreshing. To hear. It's not family. People say family a lot, but if it was family, you know, you wouldn't be getting paid. It's very different. It's not, you don't have to, you know, do something for someone for free because you're a family. You're not, this is, we're in a profession. We uh, are doing our best work together and and it's work and it's great work. I mean, I love being at Lever. I love it here. But yeah, it's different. It's separate. 
So we've talked about a lot of things from the Portland Museum of Art, all the way back to framework and mass timber for lever. What's next? Mm -hmm. Well, we're really excited about um, the PMA because, uh, you know, Thomas, the founder, he worked on a lot of cultural institutions, museums, places for art. And so we're really excited to get back into it, right? It's like that thing where you're going out for projects and many people in the firm have done these projects before, but the firm hasn't done them together, right? So that's what we're in the position of. Many people in the firm have worked on museums and galleries and art schools and things like that. But for Lever to be able to get back into museums is really great. So now we're in this position where we can go after more cultural and institutional work because that's really our passion is making places for creative people, for art, places that um, the public is welcome into, right? Places that a lot are going to impact a lot of people and a lot of people get to enjoy. And so that's what's next for Lever is um, continuing to go after those really impactful projects where we can take our specific perspective, our way of working with rural communities, our way of working with local communities of different cultures and really bring that to uh, other cultural institutions. That's what's next. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Chandra Robinson, it's so, this was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did. And uh, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. This was really fun. Thanks so much for having me on. This is a great conversation. All right. Enjoy everybody. Thank you for listening to an episode of Designed, a podcast by Architectural Record. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate you taking a moment to subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating, and leave us a comment. Have a wonderful day.